Hello and welcome to episode 158 of Herpetological Highlights, the podcast about the science of reptiles and amphibians, breaking it down, hopefully making it interesting and fun. My name's Tom Major, co-hosting with me as per usual is Ben Marshall. Hey, hey. What's up, Ben? And yeah, before we get started, we've got an episode about crocodiles and a paper which is super cool. Um, really looking forward to talking about it. We both thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, this is a winner of a paper. One of the better ones we've done in a while, I feel. Big, big fan of this yeah. paper. Yeah, it should be really sweet. But before we talk about crocodiles, right off the bat, I just wanted to share some news of my own. I've got a brand new job. So Yay. I've officially signed all the documentation. I've started I'm so I can talk about it. Yeah, in Bournemouth. So I'm working for Bournemouth University here on the south coast of England. Got a job as a postdoctoral researcher. I will finish my PhD. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's coming. But yeah, I'm working in this research cluster for fish ecology and conservation. So the interest in the unit lie in sort of how barriers in rivers like dams and weirs, invasive species, overfishing, pollution, climate change, how all these kinds of things affect fish in various ways. Part of that is tracking the movements, understanding the ecology of fish in rivers all over Europe. And I'll be working in the team as a spatial ecologist. Crucially, what animals do is what I'll be studying, where they go, how they use the environment. Quite pertinent to today in our paper about crocodiles, which we'll be looking at with crocodiles. Yeah, because what are fish if not water reptiles? We are all fish. You know, you hear that quite a bit. And also nothing's fish. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But yeah, so in the unit was like work on European eels, European shad, Atlantic salmon, and a bunch of other cool animals stuff. Yeah, working with Professor Rob Britton and lots of other colleagues in Bournemouth. And yeah, everyone I've met so far has been really great. I'm really excited, actually. It seems like it's going to be a good thing. Working on moving to Bournemouth now, which is about 20 minutes away from where I am currently. So yeah, there is also hopefully going to be a cheeky snake project in the works. Yeah, basically. What, some sort of like fish-eating snake, perhaps? No, no, just like a standalone piece of snake work. Like, we're not really sure exactly what it's oh. going <laughs> to entail yet, but yeah. I mean, what are snakes, if not fish of the land? Well, exactly. And like, you know, it, it'll all be spatial ecology related, but yeah, they, I think everyone kind of found out how much I love snakes. You know, snakes are life, so we'll try and fit a little sneaky project in there, which is great. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Let's get over to the paper. So we've got a paper today by Barham, Baker, Franklin, Campbell, Frere, Irwin and Dwyer, published in 2023, Conditional Alternate Movement Tactics in Male Crocodiles, published in Behavioural Ecology and Sociobiology. So yeah, we're talking about some big crocodiles. Big, the biggest yeah, of the crocodiles. Big, beasties, big beastie crocodiles. So they say crocodilus porosus. Porosus. Yes, porosus. Yeah, they call it the estuarine crocodile, right. but it's the saltwater crocodile. Right. Are we meant to be calling them estuarine crocodiles now? Has this been a rebrand? I'm not sure. I looked on the Australian Museum website and, I mean, who better to ask? And um, they say the estuarine crocodile is like the main name, but alternatives are the saltwater crocodile, Indo-Pacific crocodile, or just salty. Okay. So it's not like there's been a purposeful rebranding of these crocodiles like um they did for the um african wild dogs to african painted wolves oh why did they decide they weren't as wild as they previously thought these dogs are actually pretty chill I mean, 
Well, I mean, if you want to conceptualise wolf as less wild than wild dog, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know what that was about. I don't know. I had the impression it was a branding exercise to make them more attractive conservation-wise, mm. but I honestly don't know, and that's me sort of just speculating. Well- so don't take my word on it. I suppose estuarine is probably a lot more of an accurate descriptor of their behaviour because they're in rivers and out into the sea. They're not really a saltwater. They're probably much more of a freshwater than a saltwater. I guess the, the saltwater name came in, I would assume, to differentiate them from the freshwater crocodiles, which don't go in the saltwater. Right. So estuarine... Estuarine kind of makes more sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Because it's a bit of both. Yeah, but I also noticed that we have um, Terry Irwin as a co-author in this paper... The legendary crocodile conservationist. Many of us will have watched on TV in the Crocodile Diaries. So I thought that was quite cool. Cool to see her working on this. And yeah, you know, there was some crocodile trapping we'll get into. But yeah, I just wanted to talk a bit bit. more. Yeah, a bit more about the estuarine crocodile. As you said, Crocodilus porosus. It is the largest of all living reptiles. Iconic Australian animal. And it is one of the very few animals that will prey on humans. We are food for them, if we're not careful. And they get massive, up to six meters long. Males are larger than females, so they can be up to 40% larger. And this strong sexual dimorphism is believed to be an adaptation to the competitiveness of the lifestyles the males lead. And the largest males were kind of thought to hold these territories containing reproductive females, which is kind of what they're studying here. They want to see how a load of crocodiles in this river, where were we? We're in far north Queensland, the Wenlock River. They tagged a whole bunch of crocodiles. I think it was like 120, but they got enough data to talk about 78 in the Yeah, paper. 119 were captured. Yeah. yeah, that's a lot of crocodile captures. And yeah, they were using crocodile traps, just like in the Crocodile Hunter series. You have this like, it's like a larger version of a humane mammal trap, right? You have like a little... One of those Sherman trap-like yeah. setups, yeah? You hang a piece of pig or a chunk of cow off a hook. Not the hook doesn't come into it, but just to hold it. And then you have like this long sort of net and wood trap. And when the crocodile walks in to get the piece of meat, it triggers the mechanism and then the back comes down behind it. Then you have a gigantic angry crocodile in a trap that you and all your pals have got to go and jump and sit on. Has been fed. Has been fed, perhaps quite full. I guess it depends whether it gets the food prior to or after the trap coming down, because once it realizes it's trapped, probably won't feel that hungry. But yeah, they did that to capture... <laughs> I mean, if I was a crocodile, I'd take the win I could get and I'd, I'd have my little snack regardless. I, Maybe I would so, like yeah. to think. They captured the big ones like that and then the small ones, which to me seems absolutely mental, they would go out at night and like many animals, crocodiles have an eye shine. So, you know, you shine the torch around and the eye reflects. If they judged the crocodile to be less than two meters long, some poor sod's jumping out of the boat, jumping on its back and catching it. <laughs> How you get volunteered for that job, I don't know. You need to have a total maverick wildcard in the team to be willing to do that. That's absurd. It doesn't seem particularly wise. I don't know what the right body type is to wrestle a six foot crocodile in the water, but it's not mine. I'm not up for that. I'll leave it to the pros. But yeah, very cool. Very dangerous though, especially if you consider that you're in the same river potentially as a six meter long behemoth that could happily come up and swallow you without a trace. But, you know, each to their own. Mad respect. One of the cool things, so we mentioned they tagged a whole load of these crocodiles. They, you know, they capture them, and then they're actually implanting the tags, like, behind the left arm, like, in the flank. There's just, like, a little bit of meaty space. They're putting them in there. And I just thought it was cool because they used acoustic tags. So we don't... 
yes. have much cause to... We don't talk about these very often. No, they're different. But with your... We were talking about fish earlier. Yes. The connection there is they, they tend to be used in aquatic environments. Yeah, I actually saw a talk by a PhD student at Bournemouth. He was talking about using these tags on this fish called a shad. And these tags are great because... The shad is like a related, I don't know if it's related to salmon, but it, it's anadromous, which means it lives in the sea and then swims up river to lay its eggs and spawn and stuff. And so these acoustic tags they put in them, they were really clever because they were really interested in the period of the fish's life where they were swimming up the river to lay their eggs. They were trying to investigate how like barriers got in their way and whether they could travel upstream, whether they had to like wait for high tide and stuff. But obviously that's only a small portion of the year. So the tags were set so that during that sort of spring and summer period where the fish were in the rivers, they'd ping like every few minutes, but the rest of the year they wouldn't mm. really ping at all. And so that meant they could save battery and they could get like three years of data from one fish, which is really clever. Was this looking at weir removal by any chance? Weirs did come into it. I don't know whether or not they gathered the right evidence to actually get any weirs removed in that study there was someone talking about another fish called the barbel and they demonstrated that the barbel were not moving through weirs so they managed to get a weir partially oh. removed after they partially removed the weir they tracked some more barbel and it seemed to have become more of a barrier somehow so but i think a lot of that <laughs> well, it was, yeah it was, it was all scary the the weir removal was terrifying they never went back yeah i think gotta give them time part of it is that like the sample sizes were quite small so you know it's quite hard to yeah it could be hard to pick stuff up yeah. but either way we have some rather monstrous crocodiles here. Well, actually, ranging in sizes. No, a range of sizes. It's, they're not all monsters. Some of them are diddlers. Yeah. Well, sort of what two What were meters. the ranges? What was the smaller ones? The smallest ones were, were like one and a half metres, I think. Uh, half a metre. Oh, as small as that. Yeah, it's tiny. Yeah, yeah. And they're not dealing with weirs. So they're, <laughs> they're relatively free to move. And they do. So they had these uh, oh. transmitters and these crocodiles and they're pinging at various stations and you sort of detect when they're within 400 metres or so of a given station. Yeah, that's the thing I kind of missed out. The underwater stations that they have to swim by that are constantly right. looking for the pings of these things. Yeah, exactly. And they're sort of spaced yes. every kilometre or five, between one and five kilometres along the river. You have like a little anchored receiver that receives the pings and they know when the crocodile is yeah. nearby. Yeah. Proximity sensors, basically. Yeah. Which you can only really do in more aquatic, constrained areas, because if you imag imagine trying to do this for a terrestrial animal that was free-roaming over a large area, you'd have to have so many of these receivers to pick them up. It would become very costly and impractical, whereas if you're working on a river, you know that they have to use that river to navigate, so you've got a much more constrained mm. area that you need to put these uh, detectors in. They do do it for some bird studies. Like there are arrays of towers receiving signals from radio tags, but it's right. mad expensive. Pricey. Like we looked at doing <laughs> yeah, it for the snakes exactly. and I was like, oh yeah, how much would it cost for one tower? It's like, oh, yeah. cool. Guess that's 15 times my PhD's entire budget. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's not impossible. And they're definitely doing some cool stuff. I think with bats as well, because what can be helpful with this type of tech is the stuff that you have to put on the animal can be a lot smaller. You can sort of offload a lot of the tech onto your detectors rather than what's on the animal. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, I suppose crocodiles, that was less of a concern. Yeah. But yeah, 
But yeah, so they implanted all these crocodiles and then they monitored their behavior. And this study went on for 11 years. They weren't tracking all the individuals for the whole 11 years, but many of them were tagged and then tracked for multiple years. And um, yeah, I, I think... Yeah, some for like nine though. Yeah. There were some long periods of tracking for some individuals. Yeah, some of them they did really, really well. Obviously others, you know, you're always going to get some issues with tags, but typically most individuals were tra- tracked for multiple years looking at their figure. And then once they had all this data, they obviously had information on what the crocodiles have been up to, whether or not they're staying in the same sort of location, whether or not they're ranging widely, whether or not they're moving more sort of different times a year, all that kind of stuff. There's a whole host of things that they can investigate. But what they were keen to do, because they were focusing on the kind of territoriality of this species, is to try and see if they could split them up into different classes based on their behaviours. Whether there's different sort of movement strategies. Exactly, yeah. Whether different crocodiles are displaying different strategies for existing in this area where there are a lot of crocodiles to bump into and crucially it was only males that they did because they were interested in the kind of territoriality and sociality and males are different to females in that way so by studying only males they kind of have a much more focused sample and they can sort of say things with a bit more certainty it would also be interesting to see how females behave i mean i probably are papers about that i should think that given the at least as far as we know the sort of aggressive account encounters are rarer for females it's likely that maybe they're a little bit more sedentary in their ways and they don't roam and stuff but you know there's only one way to find out that would be to study them yes you would imagine that that would be the case because males are defending territories so you would expect that the territories would house females they're defending it for mate reasons as opposed to foraging and food resources Right? Yeah, yeah, but then again, I suppose on the flip side of that... So if the that, females were moving around a lot, it wouldn't be as beneficial to defend a given location. Hmm. You would probably move with a group of females. That's true, yeah, that's true. I guess there could quite easily be competition between females and smaller males or females and other females, because obviously they're not only competing for mating, they're competing for mm-hmm. food resources yeah. at the end of the day as well. And there's only so many places yes. you can ambush on the end of, edge of the river where the animals come to drink. So... It's likely that there is some competition, but that wasn't the focus of this paper. But anyway, once they had all this spatial data, they managed to plot it out and they sort of divided their crocodiles into three broad classes, didn't they? And there was a lot of variation within these classes in the way the crocodiles looked, like some of them were big, some of them were small, but there were some general patterns that you could dig out, which were pretty cool. So let's go for class A first, class A, the top notch crocodiles, if you will. These tended to be the big beastie males that keep small home ranges and are most frequently found within their sort of like home range location. So they tend to sort of be relatively sedentary, not moving around the river that much. They actually move the least distances and they generally tended to have good body condition. They're nice and fat, but they also have more injuries to their tails and their limbs, suggesting that being able to sit and stay in your territory and kind of guard it and be a territorial bruiser comes at the cost of having to get into fights in order to defend that territory. So while they're kind of the most localized, they're also seemingly living the most hostile existences. Yeah, the most consistent, wasn't it? A sort of consistent area that they're staying in. The injury thing, I'm not super sure about. Like, yes, that's so as as they get bigger, they tend to have more 
injuries present and visible, but wouldn't that be the case just as you get older, that you're more likely to get injured because you've been alive longer, so you've just had more time to get injured and get into a scrape that leaves a lasting, noticeable impact on your monstrous crocodile body? That's true. That is true. Did they not control for that in any way? I can't remember. Um, I'll have a look. (laughs) I'll have a look. You investigate that. But that is a good point. Yeah. That is a good point. You would expect that they would accrue injuries as they get older. Yeah. Hmm, I'm looking at their figure. Maybe not. But some of the injuries, mate, they were brutal. So, you know, you get the odd, you know, you might get a little puncture mark on a tail, not that big of a deal. But many of them had lost limbs. Some of them had got very grisly wounds to their mouths, um, to their faces. Yeah. Crocodile yes. battles can be savage. And yeah. they don't appear to have covered it. So it is sort of once they hit that one and a half meter SVL, the sort of chance of getting having an injury on them is jumps up. And that doesn't seem to have taken into account the age of the croc. Partly because, then, you know, these guys aren't going to know the age of the crocodile. How on earth do you work that out? But maybe that's part of it as opposed to they hit a certain size and therefore the territorial conflicts get all that more intense. It might just be a an attrition thing. That being said, there was a cool connection between bigger crocs being in better body condition in general despite these injuries. So some of them were, as you say, pretty hefty injuries of like missing limbs and things but other than a couple of examples they point out in the discussion of like missing parts of jaw they didn't appear to really hold these larger crocs back in terms of body condition was there one that had missing jaw and was getting skinny yes Ah. but that was sort of an outlier Mm. in the sort of general sense is they there was a general tendency bigger crocs better body condition so it did look like it seems like the best. That's what you want to be. You want to be the big croc. You're gonna be able to defend your best bit of territory. Yeah. And okay, you're gonna take some hits along the way, but it doesn't appear to adversely impact your health. No. And then there was class B crocs. Class B crocodiles. They were kind of like generally intermediately sized, so between a meter and a half and two and a bit meters svl so that's without the tail so quite big but these ones were kind of more likely to roam but they also changed their tactics between years so they might spend a year stationary and then a year sort of roaming around so they're kind of the more flexible class and that flexibility might reflect which larger crocs are in the area in a given year you know it might be that you have a year where you get mostly left to your own devices and then the next year some big bad boy comes down from upstream and is like see you mate and so you're off those ones were quite flexible and then he had class c these were kind of like the weakling crocs they moved the most held the largest home ranges because they were just traveling around generally they were smaller less than two meters snout to vent length without the tail and yeah they kind of were classified as roamers and they were just generally appearing to sort of try and stay out of trouble as much as possible yeah i'm gonna add an extra sort of dimension to the way you've described it there's a bunch of a-class crocs that are very small. Yeah, yeah. It's important. These are generalizations. There's a lot of variation. Yeah, because what you're sort of maybe having is younger, smaller crocs not competing with the large ones because they're too small. You're talking young crocs that aren't a problem for the larger ones. There's no point in getting embroiled in territorial battles because they're simply not competing for the same resources. You're looking at a, a smaller one that's eating different stuff and potentially isn't sexually mature or just not even 
not even worth the effort, basically. And then these sort of class B and intermediate stuff is sort of popping up throughout, but I feel like it's almost just an intermediate class between A and C in general, as opposed to its own thing. And I think what was really neat was you'd see the C, you were calling them as a these loser crocodiles that are roaming around great distances like they have nowhere to stay. It almost feels like these are the crocs that aren't quite the big ones that can hold down the full territory and they're moving around to find that spot, to to find that area that they can. They're just shy of the biggest ones. They're not small crocodiles. They're sort of, we're looking at, they're the upper two-thirds they're up there in terms of size but they're not the monsters that can sit around and chill and do nothing yeah and it almost feels like they are the next in line yeah you know pretender to the throne sort of yeah crocs they're big enough to wind up the biggest crocodiles like if the big exactly if the big beasts yeah. see those crocodiles they're like ah okay that's not quite on I gotta my move size this one but this one can't stick around because it's not going to be yeah. long yeah. yeah yeah so you're right and looking at their figure of like the class the size distributions in the different classes like you're right there are a lot of really small ones who seem to fit into the a class and yeah so yeah there's probably this sort of thing where you start off and you're too small to wind anyone up like they might eat you but but they're yep. not going to move you on. And then you start getting a bit bigger. You start to think about it, start becoming a, seen as more of a threat. You have to be a bit more mobile. And then eventually, if you're lucky, you get to be the big, big dominant boss who is strong enough, big enough and ugly enough to defend the territory. Yeah. And I mean, that's talking about it in a very, you know, we're picking a directionality there. We're, we're saying that these movement classes are dependent on the interaction with other crocodiles and the ideal is to assist it and not to move as opposed to they get so big that it's almost a necessity or vice versa. Because they do mention in the discussion that it's not, you know, the study definitively doesn't show that it's a sort of this ontogenetic change from smaller to medium to large crocodiles and a shift in movement classes. There may be other things in play regarding sort of what prey sizes different crocodiles are going for and how that prey is distributed. Because maybe you've got your medium-sized crocs or your pretender to the throne sort of crocs eating prey that is more spread out and you need to move these greater distances to find it or maybe you're more susceptible to seasonal changes or something like that because you haven't locked down a territory so that's pushing the greater movement as opposed to losing battles territorial battles against larger crocs Mm. there can be a lot more going on than just relationships between different sizes of crocs is what i'm getting at yeah absolutely they highlight a few of those in the discussion yeah yeah it's not an easy life is it for a crocodile it's not an enviable existence doesn't seem it no no doesn't seem i am consistently impressed though by how well they can do with big chunks missing from them you know like having three arms or missing half a tail just like yeah whatever it's fine i know it's i keep thinking back to the paper we covered that had the regrowth the alligator yeah yeah and just just catastrophic losses of huge important chunks and they just run with it yeah they're built like tanks these things are incredible yeah yeah very very cool animals so yeah there we go awesome 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 really impressive behavior an absolute joy to read certainly stimulated my brain cells in lots of different ways it's cool i think i think it's got a really nice narrative feel to it because you can picture this monstrous emperor crocodile defending its territory from these 
young pretenders coming in. Yeah, and I think so much. And I think that's a very compelling. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> it's a real compelling story there, even if it's not exactly the whole truth. If there are other things at play. Yeah, but so often we focus on solitary animals on this podcast, and obviously no animal is existing completely on an island socially. But mm. when you're tracking things, and there is of course going to be some interaction with the others, and it's just really refreshing to actually see it laid out like unequivocally that these things are happening. I mean, usually we don't cover those that sort of stuff because people can't do it because these guys are looking at seventy eight crocodiles 79 crocodiles or something like that yeah. like this is a monstrous sample size for a movement focused study over 11 years it's an outrageous amount of effort yeah and for many species this just simply wouldn't be feasible yeah just not possible it, it'd be you couldn't get the funding for it. it wouldn't it would be too expensive or the animals would be so hard to capture by the time you're tracking some the others are gone dead deceased or the trackers have died or expired whatever yeah good stuff all right should we move on oh no sorry one point one point which i think is important to highlight just in relation to what i was just okay, saying before we head north these guys can grow up to 70 years live for 70 years wow and we're talking about an 11 year study and that's one of the points they bring up in the discussion in terms of cautioning sort of over extrapolating how these different crocodiles are sort of changing their movement classes in terms of individuals because it is only a small portion of their life crucial point crucial point and some of them change between years so yeah another argument for yeah. long-term ecological studies right let's Very move so. north we're going north ben okay so we have got a paper by Richards, Donnellan and Oliver, 2023, again hot off the press. Five new species of the Pelodryadid genus Littoria Chudai from the southern versant of Papua New Guinea's central Cordillera with observations on the diversification of reproductive strategies in Melanesian tree frogs. Published in Zootaxa. And because it's published in Zootaxa and we didn't spend time emailing the authors, we haven't seen the whole paper. We're looking at the technical description which is published gratefully by us on the Plazi website which is where all new species come to rest and as a result we're really going to be talking about one there was how many did i say five five uh, one of which deserves an honorable mention actually because it's the species of frog that looks like a bird poo do you see that no yeah one of them looks like a poo you can't leave it at that you need to at least help me find whichever figure this so when it's a baby it's like brown with like two big white globs on its back. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find you a picture. Do you have a figure number? Have you got the paper there? No, but I have all the figures. Oh, no, 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 no. Do you? All of them? I believe so. Nah, you've only got the select figures that are relevant to this species. You haven't got the bird poo one. That's the problem. We couldn't get the Zootax of paper. Well, here, I'll send me. you a little link look on... for every single figure and see if I can find it. You, it's not there. <laughs> I just looked. What? What's its name? Oh, good question. Hang on. Uh, there you go it's the first on that link the crater mountain tree hole frog but it's only when it's a baby it's supposed to look like a bird poo wow this is do you see I'm wait for it wait for it <laughs> oh 
Interesting. So it's, well, it's brown and white. Kind of the color of bird poop. Yeah. So that one is the Crater Mountain Tree Hole Frog. And they call that one Littoria Nispella, which actually means um, attractive or beautiful in Papua New Guinea Creole language, which is kind of nice. They called it attractive or beautiful. It is beautiful, although in early in life, it looks like a poo. That's so weird. Yeah. That's so weird. I wonder if it actually works. That would be a fun follow-up study. That would be. It would be a fun follow-up study to see if it gets, yeah, I think, gets predated on compared to plain ones. And I don't know, you'd have to mix, get some poo in the mix somehow. Yeah. But anyway, we're not talking that much about that one. The one we're interested in <laughs> is called Litoria hematogaster. And we're in Papua New Guinea, right? So um, obviously vast largely mysterious region where there is lots and lots and lots of biodiversity. It's like this big old island with massive mountain range running straight down the middle of it, sort of east to west or west to east. And yeah, this new species of frog, which is really quite beautiful. The reason I wanted to do this one is because it's sort of delightfully mossy looking. and um, It's very mossy looking. Not quite as mossy as a mossy frog, but pretty damn close yeah and it's been described as litoria hematogaster which means hemato means obviously it's blood related gaster means the belly where your gas comes out of and um hematogaster means red bellied and the reason they've called it that is because on the top it's a delightful little mossy frog it looks like one of the mossy frogs from vietnam literally it's like all like lumpy bumpy and it's beautiful mottled green it's a spectacular little creature and a really intense green too like a verdant green yeah just this sort of muddy mossy green it's proper punchy green it looks like a nice mossy little frog and then on the underneath you flip it over it's got bright red legs and a little red tummy and that's could be to do with aposematism so if it gets accosted by a predator it shows it its legs maybe that's a bit startling what's the spook one that I keep forgetting the name of that uh, blue tongue skinks do the shock factor. Oh, what's the name for that? Yeah, it will not stay in my brain. No, no, me neither. Where they go, they go like what, and then ah, straight away. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I know. I was thinking of flicker fusion. That's a completely different thing. No, I can't remember. Damn, damn, it's on the tip of my yep. tip of my tongue. I know. I'm sorry I brought it up. No, it's but... <laughs> okay. No, it's always good to be reminded how little access I have to my own databases. Okay, so yeah, the brand new frog, Latoura hematogaster. What do we know about it? Well, unsurprisingly... A little. A li- well, a little. A little is probably fair to say. How big are they? Well, that's what I mean. They're little. Oh, they They're are four little. Four centimetres SVL. Okay. Tiny. There's only one specimen known ever. They've only ever seen one in the whole world ever. And that's the one they described the species from. So the picture we're looking at literally is the only one known to science. The way you can tell it apart from similar species is it's got these little knobs on its foot and legs and red limbs. They're unique to it. And it's only known from this single location in Gulf Province, southern Papua New Guinea. It's an area of limestone cast in a river basin. And so... Cast landscape. Nice little cast landscape. Yeah. Oh. Beautiful. Revealing new species. I know. Uh-huh. Classic. Not, Classic. Not what you would expect from well-known centers of endemism. Yeah. Primary foothill rainforest. They found it perched on a log in a swampy area with some small pools. 
yeah, they don't know how they reproduce. They don't know anything about the tadpoles. Nothing, nothing, nothing. But a beautiful little creature. Mm-hmm. Stunning little creature. Absolute beauty. Cool. Well, have you got anything else this week, Ben? Any other business? I don't think so. I think we're all set, um, <laughs> unless you've got anything. One thing, really. we got a couple of new patrons I wanted to shout out. So big up and thank hey, you hey. very much to Artur and Anguilla. Anguilla. Thank you, thank you. Anguilla. Anguilla is actually the scientific genus and species of the freshwater eel we have here in the UK. So I'm guessing Anguilla is a big fan of those. Argue- you need to calm down with this fish talk. I know. It's getting out of hand. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm all excited. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> I promise I'll temper the fish talk. But I mean, come on, man. Eel, it looks like a snake. It's basically the best fish. I'm not going to fight you on it. Right. Eels are really cool. And they're so slippery. So slimy. All right. That's it. I think that's it for this episode. If you want to get in touch with us, you can. We're on email. We're on social media. If you want to just get in touch, ask a question, or if you want to make a correction, if there's something we got wrong, you can email us, highlights at gmail.com. Yeah, like I say, we're on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can find us on there. If you want to become a patron like our generous new patrons and support the podcast financially, we're supremely grateful for that. And you can do that. And you get to pick topics. And you get to pick topics. Patreon.com slash Herp Highlights. Link in the show notes. All right. Until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>